0: I water like a stone Snow had fallen snow on snow more than
1: Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones,
2: and I'm Bill Bohr.
1: Merry Christmas! Almost, Bill. It's one. It's two days before Christmas.
2: Yes, it is our Christmas. Wait, no, it's three days. It's our Christmas special. It's our Christmas special. Sunday, Christmas Eve, kind of feels like Christmas,
1: right? Because we're coming into the weekend. Yep. So we, if you are seeing the live stream, we've decorated for the occasion. There's beautiful lights nice. it's in the background. We did
2: a wonderful job here, and uh, it just—I was singing Christmas songs while we were getting ready, just
1: because I was moved by I it. I shocked myself twice. There's a light that's actually not just out but broken, and my thumb hit it twice, and it's like shot, it hit the metal. So. Oh, oh. So that have you ever
2: have you ever been in Central America?
1: Uh, no. Well. Uh, I've been to the Caribbean, but not to that. Okay. Sam, I've not been in Central America on a, con, a land. I've only been on islands.
2: Okay. Well, in Guatemala, where they have the showers, to get hot water, they, they put live wires. They wrap the, the pipe with live wires. That sounds wires. unsafe. And when you, you have to be careful when you're, like, washing your hair. Because Sparks. If, if you make connection, you get a shock. If you, if you create a, if you close the circuit. Which is, that
1: might regrow hair. Uh,
2: it didn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. Yeah. So anyway, well, the incarnation, uh, um, and I've, obviously we've been talking about the incarnation and so the virgin we've, birth, been talking about the virgin birth, and very. I've gotten some really interesting comments from a variety of people about our our um, our discussion.
1: And uh, by the way, Reynolds says hello, and she wants to decorate next year. And Doug Paget just said from Facebook that he likes the look of our studio. Very nice. Uh, I like, really, I, I'll tell you, I really gave it the good college try here. I took one whole string of lights.
2: I know it is, but it's you know it's how they're it's how they're arranged.
1: Well, I did, I mean that did. I mean I did put ninety seconds of Gosh, thought into it. And that.
2: when Doug, if Doug Pageant compliments us, I feel it's, like it's I feel that's high
1: praise. It's high like, praise. I, I like because I, I like and I like his setup a lot actually.
2: No, he's he's quite professional.
1: Yeah. So. So there we go. Uh, the Incarnation. We're for it. This is, this is, this is what we celebrate every... Yeah, every... when
2: Michelle gave me a shout-out because I defended the Hypostatic Union the other day. Yeah. Said, uh, thank yeah. you. I'm on I'm on that wall for you, Jason.
1: Jason, hey, who doesn't love the Hypostatic Union? Uh, yeah. You know?
2: A couple of my students <laughs> yeah, got many, that question wrong, that many, question wrong. People.
1: Well, they got the question wrong. It doesn't mean they wouldn't love it if they understood it. Well, I
2: talked about it a lot. Well historically i gave it more time than a history class should give but anyway,
1: just to give them a little push into systematics so i, I if we we're going to talk about the significance of the incarnation we could take so many angles bill yeah yeah what would what would be the angle you would take well if, let's say you were doing a podcast on a friday night just a few days before christmas what angle would you take
2: would you give me like a minute to like imagine that situation let me just get go to my happy place and think about that um well, you know, one of the things that we've been kind of hitting around, I mean, it's it, there's no new ideas, but for us, this idea of creation and redemption being so tied together, which is a early church idea that's, you know— been rediscovered by different folks. And to me, the incarnation is is not so much a if you if you if you think of, of God as as creator and redeemers all one of the same thing, then the incarnation is this kind of natural extension of the very nature of God. It's not it's not a surprise move. It's not a um I mean of course all of this is mystery, but the fact that God would eventually seek to embrace, you know, the, the his creation, that the creature would become or the creator would become creature. If redemption and creation are all tied together, it seems to me that um, someone who desires us, someone who created us out of love for love, would find find that 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 makes total sense to me. I mean, again, it's faith seeking understanding, so it makes sense within the realm of 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 the kind of theology I just talked about.
1: Well, yeah, and also, I mean, but you could imagine something redemptive with. I think, I mean, Schleiermacher says that love. I mean he say, he says that the only sort of ontological statement about God in the New Testament, I think this is true is God is love, you know where, where yes. it's where it's it doesn't seem like a metaphor or it's, it's not yeah. yeah yeah so I mean and he thinks of love as he says you know love at its heart is the desire to unite with another, and yeah. so there is this kind of if that's if that's at the heart of divine reality, then yeah, the incarnation would seem to be something that even were we not a sinful, kind of, you know, people that needed reconciliation. Although I mean that's abstract. No, but but, the idea but, of- but but there would be there would need to be some sort of union. It seems.
2: Yeah, and I also think you know for me. The incarnation opens up the possibility, I mean, again, using classic metaphysics, if you would. Uh, I know there are some who question that, but... I'm glad to question some of cla- uh, well, I mean, <laughs> No, but you know what I'm about to say is this idea that because the very nature of existence includes suffering and death, that there is a sense where, um, that, at least that's, you know, what the reality is is differently, but the gravity of the tradition is such that that God has to become part of that. I mean, in other words, there's there's a, there's an intuition. Even um, you know, you can talk about it from a revelatory perspective. But it seems to me that this is kind of like you know, I'm I may be channeling Simone Weil here a little bit. But this idea that that the crucifixion that is existence. In other words. We are all here in part because of mass extinctions, you know, so that there is something about that, that the idea that there's this gravity, that the creator would embrace that in some way. And I think that requires, I mean, I think the incarnation is is one of those signs that points to that mystery of God being in solidarity with a creation that is um, subject to entropy and decay.
1: And that's why Ken Ham builds museums, the Creation Museum. <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. when I was, <laughs> I was saying. That. All right, how about you? You threw it to me. Well, so what were, where would you start uh, on a, well, it's on funny. A it's Friday fun- night. It's
1: funny that you said intuition because I was thinking about something. I mean, von Balthasar talks about how there's these um, great Catholic 20th century thinker. Um, says that you know when we're born and and we early on as we become conscious, sentient you know, we come into our own as a thinking, reflecting person. We have the sense that like, okay, I've been thrown into things, right? This, Like I didn't get to choose where yeah. I was born or who, you know, who my parents were or or where I hailed from or what language I spoke or what my cholesterol levels are or whatever. Uh, well, I, I could I, choose a little bit of that, but predisposition to Yeah, I did not <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, well. choose the CIA lab in which I was created. Exactly. And, yeah.
1: But yet he thinks that like most of the time we have the sense also that it's not, fatalistic. we have the sense of, of, of radical contingency, right like wow. Uh, and yet we have this sense of a desire for meaning and, and, and specialness and we have the yeah. sense that even though we're radically contingent, there's this sense of like wow, a me, and there's something special about my own existence, and he thinks that gives way to the sense of oftentimes i mean this is why people are incurably religious right like and and transcendence gets even if you're um outside of traditional institutional expressions of that or whatnot things become other sacreds.
2: Well, you know, with like Sam Harris, uh, and one, I guess it might be his most recent book. I, I, I don't follow him that closely. But, you know, Sam Harris is, is one of the more thoughtful of the new atheist. I I don't know. Do you like your atheist new or old? I kinda like the old ones. Oh but, I well,
1: I mean yeah. I mean yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean I like Christopher Hitchens a lot, but
2: Well, I like him I like him as a critic, not as a as a theologian or pseudo theologian. I thought he's
1: interesting. But no, I think general. he's an interesting
2: right. But I mean Sam Harris, I think I I like Sam Harris, uh, some of what he says. But Sam Harris has this uh existential religious he calls it I don't remember exactly what he calls it, but he's trying to not call it religious, but it's kind of a religious experience when he visits the galley. Yeah. yeah. Now why Sam Harris was in the galley, I don't know. But he comes to the Galilee and has this experience, and, and he—it's funny, he's, he's, he needs a language to, yeah, language to talk about. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm not doing justice to the rest of what he said about it because I just read the article around it. But, yeah, I think you're right. This, this, there's something—even when part of our whole vacation is to debunk Christ, uh, faith, it, certain things keep, keep happening. You know, I had a, a friend—still <coughs> a friend, I ran into him the other day—excuse <coughs> me. Brilliant guy. A brilliant guy. A professor at an Ivy League school. A uh, theoretical mathematician. So when I ask him what he's working on, I, he loses me, you know, sentence number two. <laughs> but we were going back and forth one time, and he knew, you know, we, he knew what I did. And we were talking something, and, you know, at one point he says, well, Darwin's my god. And I go, well, all right, so your god's dead. But – uh a nice guy, but he's dead. And He laughed. Um, and then we're going, and he, he was, I can't remember exactly what I said. I said, wait a minute. Now you're crossing over to my area. Cause he would go. Darwin's and, your God. I mean, like, wh- why wouldn't you say like, it was metaphorical? It was just, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, he would, well, anyway, I mean, his, his whole point. And, uh, and, and at one point I, said, I would take, I might even take Stern over Darwin. <laughs> well, I know you, you would take Stern. I love Stern. Over, yeah.
1: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winner Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donling, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Cress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening and now back to the show.
2: But at one point, I said, So let me get this right. So you're, and he had these great kids. uh, And uh, his little girl, we coached soccer together. His little girl was just beautiful and so sweet. And so I looked at it. She was over there playing. I go, So, so," in other words, when she was born and you held her, you were just feeling some sort of aberrant evolutionary feeling of some sort that really, and and he also was dealing with brain energy that could be reduced to an equation. Is that what you're saying? He looked at me and goes, all right. I'll give you that one reference. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and so, I mean, so von Balthasar thinks that like this first sense in which we have this weird sense of our radical contingency, you know, and, and yet same time that like, gosh, there's something special here. Like I'm, I, that I'm a, I'm something, I'm a thou, you know, like yeah. I, I'm a, you know, like, and he thinks that, well, then you wind up, um, y- you, you spend some time in the world and you have this sense that you're, that your thouness is corresponding or your subjectivity is by again, this sort of like religious echo or this transcendent echo somewhere, you know. But he thinks that the thing about the echo or the, or the, the address is it doesn't come from any can, any being like you or any other contingent being, whether it be a dog or a tree or, a, you know, or, or a, a a range rover or anything you know these are all contingent beings right that are and it doesn't even come from the world as a whole because the world as a whole is still one big contingent it's some of contingent beings or a, a big contingent reality so then he thinks you're posed with this problem like well which is sort of the the if it's says four parts or whatever this is the fourth sort of stage where you're like where's the address from you know and and he thinks that Generally, and he's—I mean—he's thinking in, uh, in in Western history. So I'm sure, like in the history of Western thought, I'm sure there are parallels. I mean, I mean there's certainly in some Eastern traditions, other places parallels. But he's thinking that you know what happens is you you either try to preserve this I thouness, mm-hmm. you know, this and this personal address in myth, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is myths become too anthropological. They become too capricious. They, they, they don't ultimately, they, they satisfy the need for something, a personal other, like an otherness but they don't, uh, they, they trade on the transcendent aspect. Like that you, 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 you eventually ultimately lose a lot of transcendence for the sense of otherness and the personal address. He thinks, well, the other way you go is kind of a philosophical approach, which uh, you know, through some sort of metaphysic tries to get the transcendent in some form of of apprehension, understanding, mm-hmm. thinks you avoid some of the dualism, although you don't avoid the mythology because what happens with like, some like Plato, you know, you, you get stuck and you come up with like myths of demiurges and use poetic language, it's all right. for, you know, and things like that. But he says, you know, the, even at its best, what you lose is... um you lose the sense of the personal otherness. You, you, you right. get some of the universality and avoid some of the parochialness, but you lose the, the personal nature. And he thinks ultimately this impasse leaves us with a kind of, uh, religion that, you know, winds up devolving into something like pantheism or, or, or folk religion, you know, or, or really right. limited or a philosophy that becomes a sort of monistic philosophy identity or something all, you know, and he thinks that they're, they're both ultimately that neither, neither ever quite solves the problem. Yeah. And, yeah. and then he thinks that we're, that this existential problem that most people with these transcendent, most people have some sort of transcendent spiritual experiences. He thinks that, that, that the problem as it, as he describes it laid out with, you know, with a myth versus a kind of, Critical rational, rational sort of metaphysical approach to the problem. Both of them leave you ultimately with solutions that don't address the existential problem. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, it, it's it's interesting, which you know, I find compelling. I, uh, I actually uh, think uh, this uh, is uh,
1: a compelling description of the problem of religious and philosophical no, history. I think
2: it's a very compelling discussion, and and I think, um, and it's actually a kind of a, a, a kind of sophisticated analysis of what's really going on. I mean, sometimes when you push people who you know, like, you know, I got a number of people that were interested about our incarn or our, our Virgin Mary conversations, but there are people who don't believe in it, and kind of they want to talk mythology, they want to talk about different kind of things. But what's interesting then when you say, okay, well, what do you think? And and. It, you end up with some of the dilemmas you know you you have i mean for me again faith is not certainty i mean it's a, it's a different, it's of a different category so the fact is i i think what has changed over my years as in terms of what you're talking about the birth narratives or how do i hold all these historical textual issues and tension. Well, to me, it's just part of the, you know, if you would, the solar system, all these things, you know, that are are revolving around each other and what it means to have faith. And and the fact that I have more information, the fact that I have um, different kinds of uh, maybe a a, a different kind of read of the text and some, you know, I did when I was 12 or whatever, that still doesn't, minimize the need for faith. I mean, uh, it's always an act of faith. I mean, it's always a sense of these, you know, getting back to one person was trying to critique the text, and I said, well, I think with certainty you can say that the New Testament is a reliable witness to what first and second generation, you know, even if it didn't get finalized into the third generation, given its prehistory and all that, I think you've gotten in the New Testament a reliable witness of what the early followers of Jesus thought. In other words, you know, whether or not you believe it or not, that's a different issue. But it's, it's, I think, given what we know from textual criticism, from, from sources— from the fact that scriptures are being quoted
1: fairly early, and when you say one thing that you're saying the contra of you that like well, there was a big cover up about a generation or a generation after Jesus, and really the whole thing got co-opted, and we and we turned something like the Jesus of history into the Christ of faith or something like that
2: yeah, no, and that doesn't mean there's not i, I don't That doesn't mean that the scriptures speak with one voice matter of fact I, I also think probably the gospel of Thomas as a fairly reliable uh, representation of what some people were thinking by the second generation. I mean, I think there's things of Gospel Thomas that probably goes back to authentic sayings. So it's not that there is just one monolithic view, but I don't think it's intellectually uh, honest. To try to critique the text, in other words, to say this is something that's made up from a later perspective, you know, and um, you know, someone for instance said, well, you know, it, it wasn't until they decided that Jesus was divine that they went back and read into these things. And I go, well, actually, there's divinized language, there's yeah. strong divinized language in in the New Testament, and the Philippians hymn is early. I mean, it's it's it predate most likely predates Paul, and it's written in at least you know the mid late fifties. So the only point I'm saying in that is that. In the, in the... And there's a lot I'm
1: just playing. If I said, I'm going to tell you a story about someone who can, well, this won't mean anything now, but a different generation, of it. like who can um, run faster than a locomotive and leap tall buildings in a single bound, Bill Bohr. I mean, you would know immediately, will there be some tension there? Because not that you couldn't leap, but um, I, I have actually never seen you leap, but uh, I'm not. Th- I don't have the lift that I used to have. Yeah, like, but I mean, so. but it would be clear that I was trying to draw an analogy and put somebody in the story that. I'm putting somebody, everybody knows, or at least people with the old Superman kind of narrative know who, and then, so I mean, there's lots of just passages like that in the Gospels themselves, not to mention the toy literature, but right, but where it, the God of Israel is the actor that could do X. Right. Or y, and you see Jesus in the place of X.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the writers of the New Testament definitely saw themselves in continuity with the God of signs and wonders in the Hebrew scriptures. So, and that was part of, you know, that's part of what they were waiting for to, to come back. Now, again, that's, it has to be, I think the New Testament has to be read as an extension of the way the Second Temple Judaism read its Hebrew scriptures. And I think and, and, and just like for us, they're living texts, they were very much living texts for them as well. That gets back to, I think, some levels, what's, the picture of those hymns in Luke, may you know, maybe some insight into the piety of those kind of folks. That you know, that kind of Judaism maybe either got absorbed into Christianity or didn't survive. You know, you know the the war with with um, with Rome. But I, I think that you know, we have a picture of uh, a community of people who saw themselves not only as fulfillment but in continuity with what came before them. And I think that this idea, again, wanting God with us, that was that's the promise of the covenant. That's the promise of the, Le- of the Levitical covenant, it's the promise of the Deuteronomistic covenant, that God would be with us. He would be, you know, he would be among us. And that's what they longed for. I mean, how that was going to happen, obviously— uh, Followers of Jesus and and those who come after it was it was a different idea than maybe what they were thinking, but nonetheless, it was the longing.
1: Oh yeah, and and von Balthasar thinks this is you know that we we long for the, the he th- he thinks that it's human eros, our desire, is for this address from being itself, yes, source being, and yet one that's personal. I mean, you know, not an abstract. And so he thinks that ultimately the biblical tradition, culminating in the self offering of the triune God in and as Jesus Christ is the answer to the universal human longing that begins early on in human development for each of us. Yeah. And, and that it's interesting that what we celebrate Christmas is the, is actually the, the infancy of the longing that he thinks we have in our infancy. Ah, Um, Oh, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, that is a, that's interesting. I mean, for him, he thinks that it's all Christian revelation. This revelation that begins, you know, in in the manger is the answer to this desire for the address from the universal, but that's particular and personal.
2: Yeah, actually, the story that happened around the Feast of Epiphany, um, my oldest son— was uh, about four months old. So it was, it was, yeah, it was in the time of Epiphany. It was right after Christmas. And uh, it was one of those things he was being changed and um, his mother just turned for a second and he rolled off the changing tape. And um, yeah, it was one of those, he'd never done, he picked a bad time to try that He was first. mobile yeah and I was, agile mobile uh, you know and, and so I mean this is your first child, and you know I was a kid with a kid and and uh so it you know you know you take him in the emergency room and you're just intimidated and you're you know just terrified and um i'll I'll never forget um you know, and trust me, I spent a lot of time in emergency rooms. So you know. So I mean had, I had four sons, they were athletic and they also uh played hard together. So I, I uh, was in the emergency room. I had my own room. We had our own the boar, the boar wing. But anyway. And um and he, you know, so it was his arm was limp. He ended up having a broken collar collarbone. But you know, again, you're just as a parent, you're just terrified and, and um and they took him. And I can still see his little face. Hmm. And I, you know they took him back to do an X-ray or whatever, and uh, for whatever reason they didn't let us come. And I've just you know it's it's a thought that stays with me. I said if I could take his place, and it was this moment that has always stayed with me because you know he was fine, you know, and he he um, and he grew up to break many other things, but um, but I I. I just, I, you know, later on, I guess, I don't know, church or whatever, a couple of days later, I was just the incarnation just felt like a whole different, different thing for me because I couldn't take his place. I couldn't take his pain. I couldn't even be with him. And I, you know, and he's this
1: four month old. He doesn't understand what's going on.
2: And, you know, it, it, um
1: well, it's never left me. It's really interesting. Last night, well, down I went to see. There's an annual performance of Handel's Messiah at Philadelphia Orchestra. It's it's fantastic. I mean, it's it's fantastic um, every year. It's just I mean, we have a great orchestra. Um, and I was sitting there, and it really hit me differently last night. And you know, I I, mean, I always find it beautiful, but it was really. I mean, the soloists were. Yeah, there was something about it that was really moving. And I was sitting there thinking about. This sense that well, I was like, what? What about people that would say that there's not really much of the life of Jesus here? Like, you, you get the prophecies, the birth, then we go to the passion, it's the, the, the resurrection, resurrection, and then the final hope. And I, I thought, well, it seems to me that that the summary of the life of Jesus is part Isaiah prophecy. Uh, well, it's all it's it's all I say, <laughs> but it it, it, it Struck me that well. I guess this is enough. I mean, it's just, you know, it's basically his yoke is easy, his burden light. He was despised, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And I thought, yeah, I mean, on some level, you think of all these I thou encounters uh, with Jesus that you read about in the Gospels. And some, in some level, this my yoke is easy, my burden light. I mean, an invitation into a, a forgiveness, faith, and freedom. That ultimately, an invitation that led him. To be despised as a man of sorrows. Yeah. But that, yeah, and somehow that, yeah, the beginning of the unfolding of that life is is, is there in miniature, quite literally, Yeah. in the manger. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Friends.
0: On this holy night, when God's great star appears and floods the earth with brightness, birds, voices, rising song, all night long Express their glad heart's lightness the voices rise in song And wobbling all night long Express their glad heart's night The nightingale is first As his note to Bethlehem, I'll fly where in the stall he's lying.